God's word beginning in verse 25 of Luke 14 says, Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brother and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he's laid a foundation is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king? Going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Well, have you ever been the recipient of the recruiting or the sales process? As for recruiting, perhaps you were in college and you were being wined and dined by executives trying to get you to come work for them. Maybe it was a military recruiter taking you out to eat and telling you all the perks and benefits of being in the military. Perhaps you were a star athlete and colleges wanted you to come play and so they had you come down for a weekend and proverbially rolled out the red carpet. Maybe you never had those, but you bought something and the car salesman, he talks to you and he generously and lavishly tells you all the benefits of this car. They go on and on telling you this is the deal of the century, but you have to buy right now because I'm only giving you this deal just for you or the furniture salesman says oh just lie down on this bed it'll be so comfortable but you have to buy it now 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 well in most recruitment and sales you get treated well you told all the wonderful things that will happen if you only sign the dotted line and go with them what they don't tell you is all the fine print all of the negatives, and they often push you to make a rash decision. In other words, they try to highlight all the benefits while kind of hiding all the cost. Well, this stands in the stark contrast to Jesus when he tells us to proverbially sign on the dotted line. Notice verse 28. He says, For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost? Or verse 31, again, which one does not sit down? When Jesus wants us to make a decision about him, he doesn't want us to rush. He doesn't want us to be ill-informed. He doesn't want us emotionally driven or anything hasty. Rather, he brings up all the fine print and says, I want you to look at this, to realize what it is going to cost to follow me, and then make your decision. And this is not the first or last time. Jesus will be honest and forthright about the cost of following him. In Luke 9, 23, he said, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. He does tell us the benefits, but not only that, he also shows the cost. So sit down, or you are seated, 
and do what they do in business and make a cost-benefit analysis. What are the costs? What are the benefits? And do the benefits outweigh the cost? Well, Jesus lays out three costs of being his disciple. On the back today, you will not find an outline, so haha, you've got to write it yourself, making you work extra hard. That's cost of being a disciple this morning. You've got to write with your own pen. First, we'll see in verse 25 and 26 that Christ or God must be valued more than family. Then in verse 27, the second cost, Christ must be valued more than self. So first in verse 25 and 6, more than family. Second, verse 27, more than self. Third, in verses 28 through 33, Christ must be valued more than possessions. More than possessions. And he ends in verses 34 and 35 telling that a half-hearted disciple is useless. But it's interesting where this starts. Because in verse 5, a great crowd is following Christ. And Jesus is vastly different than what we'd expect. Most people, if they have a huge crowd following them, what are they going to do? Well, tell them what they want to hear. Keep the crowd coming. And yet Jesus is saying, oh, a huge crowd is a problem. Let me tell you, huge crowd, why you might want to sit down and consider the cost, why you need to consider the cost of following me. And one of the mantras of the church growth movement in the late 90s into the 2000s was, you never want to say things in church that are going to make people uncomfortable or things that will make them maybe squirm. Yet that is the exact opposite of what Jesus chooses to do. He warns that following him will not be easy, that it will be hard. In fact, he puts front and center the potential cost of following him. You know, he's not like a radio commercial where they tell you about something and then somehow they go into speed mumble talk for 10 seconds about all the things that will happen badly if you purchase this thing. He says clearly, this is what it costs if you follow me. Now this is important because we have seen for several weeks Jesus saying the religious leaders of Israel, they are not on the path to God. So now he needs to show them what the path actually looks like. And he broadly tells them the path to God is when he is the first priority in your life. And he talks about this in terms of being a disciple. We are familiar with that term because we go to church, we read the Bible, but what is a disciple? Well, disciple is just literally a learner. And yet a learner in God's eyes is not just someone who gathers more facts, but who then lives it out in their life, in their thoughts, in their deeds. He's calling us to total allegiance to him. And he says first in verse 26 that if anyone wants to come to him, they must hate their relatives and even himself. And if they don't, they're not able to be his disciples. Well, what is Jesus saying? Well, clearly he's speaking in hyperbole or purposeful exaggeration. For we already saw in Luke chapter 10, verse 27, that Jesus said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. As well, Jesus constantly affirmed the Old Testament. One of the Ten Commandments is, Honor your father and mother. Also, we looked at Luke chapter 10, the good Samaritan, and Jesus praised the man for loving his enemy. And so Jesus is now, now teaching the exact opposite. What Jesus is doing is he's using an idiom or expression that they use in their culture. It's an idea of preference. We see this in Genesis 29. You may be familiar with the story of Jacob and then his two wives, Rachel and Leah. And it says in Genesis 29, 
Jacob loved Rachel and hated Leah. Now the point is not that Jacob actively had resentment towards Leah, but that he preferred her. And Jesus has the same thing in mind here. You know, the parallel in Mark 10, sorry, Matthew 10, expresses it well. For there it says, Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Following Jesus means that he becomes your greatest allegiance, your greatest love. That all other relationships and activities take second fiddle. That what we treasure, desire, love the most is him. Now most often, by following Christ, we will grow in our love for family. Because we love him, we know that flushes out in loving people. Even Paul writes in 1 Timothy 5.8 that if we fail to care for our families, we're worse than an unbeliever. Yet, it has often been the case that in order to follow Christ, one must do things that look like hatred for family. Many of you all have probably heard of Richard Wormbrand. He was a Romanian pastor in the mid-1900s, and communist Russia came in. They took over the country. And as they did in all their countries, they said, Y'all are welcome to keep having your churches. You're allowed to worship as long as you follow our book. You're allowed to sing as long as you sing the songs that we approve. And they had a big conference where pastors from all over the country and church leaders were welcome to come. And leader after leader went forward and said, this is wonderful. We can do this. We can worship still. Communism is great. No problem at all. Wormbrand then writes, My wife and I were present at this Congress. She told me, Richard, stand up and wash away this shame from the face of Christ. They are spitting in his face. I said to my wife, If I do so, you lose your husband. She said, I don't want to have a coward as a husband. Then I arose and spoke to this Congress, praising not the murderers of Christians, as many of the communists were, but Christ and God, and said that our loyalty is due first to him. Wormbrand could have gone along with all the other religious pastors, all the other leaders, and if he did, his life would have remained normal. And yet because he stood up for Christ, he was then arrested and spent eight horrible, torture-filled years in prison. His wife was also arrested and spent three years in a labor camp. And yet, this is the type of love that Jesus calls for us to have towards him. This says, yes, we love our spouse or children or family or friends, yet nothing will ever be greater allegiance than my Savior. He is greater than all. And love that's so strong that some people may even think, that's almost hate. How could you do that? Well, because I love my Savior more. And this is an abstract theology you probably all could recount someone who because of a girlfriend or because of a boyfriend or because of a relative stopped following christ who slowly drifted away and jesus though declares that to do so shows you're not really his disciple you know, at this point we have to guard ourselves against a mental mistake that we can easily make in this passage and the mistake is to think that here jesus is talking about being a good or being a better disciple. 
being an immature or growing to be a mature disciple. And the mature disciple is the one who loves Christ more. That's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is not talking about relative qualities of the type of disciple you are. Jesus says this is what is being a disciple, whether you love him first or not. To become a disciple is, yes, a simple profession of faith and submission to him. But the reality of that profession and submission is seen in our lives. Jesus is clear. His point here is not on how to improve or become a better disciple, but to be a disciple in the first place. Now we have to be clear, Jesus is not saying we'll be perfect. Peter was a disciple who denied him three times, who in essence said, I don't hate you, hate myself more than you, I'll deny you. And yet he can be restored. So the point is not perfection. And yet if we unrepentantly say, I'm going to always put family first, then we're showing we aren't his disciples. And yet I'm wondering as we read this, if one part made you kind of cringe and go, ooh, I don't know about that. Because Jesus said we must hate even ourself. Isn't self-hatred a horrible thing? Well, as with many things, it depends on what we mean by self-hatred. If by self-hatred we mean we should be going around saying, I'm dumb, I'm worthless, I'm a horrible person, I am no good, my life has no meaning. Well, yes, that is very bad. That's bad emotionally, that's bad spiritually, that's bad psychologically. However, that's not what Jesus is talking about. To understand the self-hate Jesus talks about, we have to understand it in relation to the relative hate he was just talking about. You remember he just said that to hate our relatives is not that we actively hate them, but it's a preference that we put our Savior before our family. So when Jesus talks about hatred of self in Luke 14, he's saying we put him even over ourselves that he's our most valued most loved being that we love him more than we love our ambitions we love him more than we love our own desires so yes going around and saying how horrible you are and how worthless that is horrible that's not the epitome of godliness godliness though realizes there's something there's someone who is greater much greater than you and he's worth living for and even dying for. You know, the, in Revelation, it talks about this men and women who've overcome the devil, and it says in Revelation 12, they have conquered the devil by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. They put Christ over all, and through that they were able to conquer. But this is so important, because if you look at verse 27, Jesus is going to say that, Christ must be valued more than self. So Luke 14, verse 27, again it says, Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Now Jesus had said something similar in Luke 9, and so this wouldn't be the first time he'd said it, but remember Jesus is traveling throughout Palestine, through Israel, and this would probably be the first time these people had heard it. And these words would be utterly shocking to them. We, we have up behind me a cross. Some of you probably have a cross around your neck or on your ring. and It's a nice picture, a symbol. And we think of it well and fondly. And yet to them in their day, a cross was anything like that. Tom Holland writes, To be hung naked, nailed to a cross, every breath in agony, 
helpless to beat away buzzards. Such a fate, Roman intellectuals agreed, was the worst imaginable. Crucifixion as a deterrent needed to be public, with victims unavailingly crying for mercy. But so foul was the carrion reek of their disgrace that many felt tainted even by viewing a crucifixion. Romans almost never even described this ultimate penalty. And yet this is the symbol that Jesus says, this is what it's like to be my disciple. And Jesus' hearers would have even been more alarmed because they knew that Deuteronomy 21 says, cursed is everyone who hangs from a tree. So what in the world does Jesus mean when he says we have to take up our cross and follow him? Well, we get to live on the end part of that. And we know first it means he's referring to himself that he would take up his cross and follow his father. But second, we see it's a call to suffering and a willingness to die. The call is self-denial. Christ does bring great fulfillment to us, and yet we are only filled with him as we empty ourselves, as we deny ourselves and live for him. Being a disciple of Christ will also mean that some will hate us, and having to choose what is right may be costly in our lives. Yet there's this hope, because even as we die to popularity, as we die to fame, as we die to wealth or whatever it may be, we know that the cross is not the end. Because Christ rose again. In a weird countercultural way, a cross leads to life. You may have heard of Alexander Solzhenitsyn. He lived in Russia in the 1950s, 1970s, and he was arrested in Stalin's communist Russia. And he was sent to Siberia in the gulag, the horrible work camps that they had out there. He writes about them. At some point, every prisoner faces a choice. If he adheres to the view that there is only this world and only the result counts, he will steal food from his starving fellow prisoners, become an informant, and do anything, no matter how repulsive, to survive at any price. This is the great fork of camp life. From this point, the roads go to the right and to the left. If you go to the right, you live. If you go to the left, you lose your conscience. He's saying, look, in camp life, being in the gulag, they're going to treat you so horribly, but you can live if you're willing to steal, murder, and do whatever. But to do so, you have to give up what's right and true, your conscience. It's easy to live for Christ when it makes us popular and improves your life. However, how do we respond when following Christ means suffering and dying? And we need to be clear, Jesus is not saying, well, this is how we're saved. Jesus had to die to pay for our sins, and nothing we do will ever add to that. Rather, what he's saying is what we truly believe is the greatest good is shown in what we sacrifice for. Your parents love their children, and so they make great sacrifices for them. An athlete loves Winning, and so he sacrifices time and energy. A lover loves their loved, and so they sacrifice their time and lots of money and lots of other things because they love them. What we love, we sacrifice for. And so if we love the Savior, that's shown by we're willing to take up the cross and follow him. 
Sadly, these truths are becoming more and more pressing, even in our own country. You know, for most of our nation's history, if you wanted to be an officer, hold public office in a city or state, or even the country, you had to be a member of a church somewhere. To fail to do so would automatically fail, get you not to be elected. However, that has changed. Even back in 2017, and there was an appointee to work for the White House Management and Budget Office. Okay, that's an accountant. And he was being grilled in his appointment hearing by a U.S. senator. He was pressed on his belief that Christ alone can save. Now, I don't know how Christ alone can save has anything to do with whether you can balance a budget spreadsheet, but nonetheless, this senator felt like this was the issue he needed to hone in on. And after pressing and pressing in the man, the senator's time was up, and he said, well, this is not someone who this country is supposed to be about. So for many today to follow Christ, follow his words, well, that excludes you from public office. That's not who we're supposed to be about. And both nationally and locally, following Christ can hurt your reputation. It can hurt your position. It can hurt your social acceptance. So have you sat down, Christ is asking, and counted the cost? Jesus has told of treasuring or valuing him more than family and self, and now he's going to turn in verses 28 to 33 to say we must value him more than possessions. But before he does, he gives two examples of needing to sit down and consider the cost. If you look at verse 28, we see the first one of building a tower. And Jesus asked, look, if you're going to build a tower, aren't you first going to sit down and count how much it's going to cost to build it? You don't want to start laying the foundation of this tower that will oversee your vineyards and probably have some barns attached to it. And then after you pay the workers and pay for the supplies for the foundation, you go to buy the lumber and you go, whoa, we don't have any money left. And there sits this massive foundation with nothing on it. Because if you do that, Christ says, then people will come by and they'll mock you. (laughs) What an idiot. He didn't even figure out that he couldn't afford the wood after the foundation. God, that guy's an idiot. Sadly, those situations still arise today. The Oregonian writes, the Portland City Council approved plans for a 500 million water filtration plant in 2017. But now, more than two years later, water bureau leaders say the plant likely will cost 70% more, or $850 million. That's because the original cost estimate did not include any pipes to carry water to or from the treatment plan. Great, fresh, clean water. How do we get it? Oh, we forgot to write that into the proposal. And so we laugh. <laughs> How could you have a water treatment plant without pipes? And so we laugh. That's so foolish. And Christ says, the person who comes to him and doesn't count the cost, they're like that. They didn't even sit down and consider that it's going to be costly, that it is not always going to be easy. Well, Jesus then gives a second example. He tells of a battle that's going to happen. And the king, he he knows, oh, look, I only have 10,000 troops and they have 20,000. Now, as you look through military history, there's many battles in which smaller foes have won. They have conquered a larger enemy, but they've always needed a better strategy, better defensive situation, or something so they could win. They don't go, well, who cares if they got two soldiers for every one of us? We'll win. And if they can't do it, what do they do? Well, they send peace treaty. Come on, quick, we need to get this worked out because we're going to lose. 
they count the cost. And Jesus is saying, look, have you stopped to consider the cost? And then he gives one more cost. Verse 33, he says, So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciples. So first we saw Christ has to be loved more than family. Second, Christ has to be loved more than self. And here third, Christ has to be loved more than all of our possessions. Again, the point here is primary allegiance. Everything in our life, Jesus says, has to be on the proverbial table, open for Jesus to use. Slightly related to this, one of my professors would often ask us, not how many children do you have, but he'd ask, how many children have you? They own you, it seems like. They are controlling your life. And likewise, it's worth considering Do you own your possessions or do they own you? When opportunities arrive to give and share, are you quicker mentally to go, that's mine? Or are you quicker to go, I can help that person out with that? The immediate, cheerful, quick, and without complaint response many give to the ding on their phone is clear who's calling the shots in that relationship. Do we own our possessions or do our possessions own us and jesus is saying look he must rule our life he must rule all of it he must rule over our homes our cars our electronics there could be no half-hearted commitment the god of the universe is calling us to himself and so the question shouldn't be well what's the least i can give is it 10 percent? is that all i gotta do no he says i want all of it what does he deserve again have you considered the cost. John Stott writes about this. The Christian landscape is strewn with the wreckage of derelict, half-built towers, the ruins of those who began to build and were unable to finish. For thousands of people still ignore Christ's warning and undertake to follow him without first pausing to reflect on the cost of doing so. The result is the great scandal of Christendom today, so-called nominal Christianity. Large numbers of people have covered themselves with a decent but thin veneer of Christianity. They have allowed themselves to become somewhat involved, enough to be respectable, but not enough to be uncomfortable. Their religion is a great soft cushion. It protects them from the hard unpleasantness of life while changing its place and shape to suit their convenience. No wonder the cynics speak of hypocrites in the church and dismiss religion as escapism. And Christ is saying the following of him is not a cushion. It's a cross. It's costly. And yet he's saying, look, again, this is not just how you go from being a poor to a rich or immature to mature disciple. This is how you be a disciple. And so lastly, in verses 34 to 35, we see our fourth point, that a half-hearted disciple is useless. Verse 34 says, salt is good. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? In a society before refrigeration, salt was an essential element of life. If you want any meat to be preserved any longer than just the butchering of it, you have to rub it and brine it and put it in salt. And here Jesus is saying, look, what's the value of salt if it becomes unsalty? Now, how how could salt become unsalty? 
Well, what Jesus is talking about is that most of the salt in their time came from the Dead Sea. And along with it would be other minerals. And if they left it out, the elements, the rain would go through and leach out the salt. And so the unsalty salt, you might say, was utterly worthless. It was good for nothing. It wasn't even good to be in a manure pile. You just threw it out. It would be like a tomato. A green tomato can be fried. Very good. A red tomato can be made into salsa, spaghetti sauce, make a wonderful BLT. Yet a rotted tomato is good for nothing. You just throw it out. It's worthless. Ugh. Smells. Doesn't even taste good. Well, Jesus' point is that a professed disciple who actually loves family, who loves self, who loves possessions more than him, they're a rotted tomato. They're a unsalty salt. And what do you do with that? You just throw it away. It's no good. It's useless. You're not actually a disciple at all. It's a contradiction in terms. You can't be a follower of Christ if you don't actually follow Christ. And to follow Christ means he's your greatest treasure, the one you love most. And if we don't completely surrender our allegiance to him, then we have become saltless salt, good for nothing. And this should radically affect each of us in our own discipleship, but also it should affect how do we let others know of how they can be a disciple of Christ. Rather than pushing people towards emotionally charged decisions, we should seek to faithfully lay out the gospel and have them consider. Your Christianity should never be about having people check their brains out. It should have their brains fully engaged. And we should avoid seeking to have a fun factory. And yet, sadly, many churches have become that in order to, quote-unquote, win people. Now, Christ does bring deep, satisfying joy. He brings hope. And yet, sadly, many churches compete to be more entertaining and fun. One church website reads, Our goal is to create a welcoming environment that is fun and friendly for you and your family and friends. Our goal is that you leave us having made some new friends and already looking forward to returning the next week. Well, I'm sure that the leaders of that church are genuine, caring people. I'm sure that they want people to come to know Christ. However, I'm concerned that their methodology is undercutting what would actually lead to real disciples of Christ. If all I get from a service is fun and feeling good, where is the call that Christ is giving us here? Where is the call to take up our cross and follow him? You know, sadly, a lot of church has become about me, making me feel good. And while we should because of Christ, that's not where we begin. Is the goal primarily to make our life better now or to worship God? You don't need Christ. You don't need a cross to have a fun-filled, enjoyable service. You need Christ. You need the cross, though, to know God, to be known by him and be his disciple. And all this really leads to an important question because you might be thinking, well, why would I follow something? Why would I go buy a car? Why would I sign up for a job if all they ever tell me is, well, look, it's going to cost this job's going to be hard. This job's going to be suffering. Why would you ever sign up for that if it's all cost? 
And yet Jesus is just giving us one side because for every one of these costs, there is an amazing benefit. First, think about the family. Because when Christ calls us, he beckons us not just to be disciples, he beckons us to be his children. You know, I love my parents. I never realized how great a home I had, how good parents I had until I left home and then started interacting with others and going, wow, I have really good family. You know, I look forward to this Thursday and seeing cousins and siblings and other people. It, was, it will be a wonderful time. And yet, sadly, eventually, they will either die and leave me or I will die and leave them. All my family will eventually go away. But God welcomes us. He calls us into a family that will last for eternity. He says, come be one of my children. Death will not take you from me. Death will bring you to me. Then we'll see him face to face. So yes, we need to put him above family now. But then we get to be with that family forever. The cost is not as great as the amazing benefit. Or think about our possessions. You know, Think of the greatest thing you could get for Christmas. Probably by next Christmas, you'd want a new one. It will have started to tarnish. It will get old. A newer model will be out. All our possessions, all the things we cling to, they rust, they fade, they get outdated. Christ promises us possessions that are imperishable, undefiled, and waiting for us in heaven with him. So yes, we need to be willing to renounce our possessions here. But the cost is only for the greater benefit of being with him and what will last for all eternity. Or what about the third one, the middle one, the cross? How could that ever bring a benefit? Well, because the cross leads to life. It's as we die that we only truly live. And we know that because of Christ. The cross did not lead to his defeat. It led to his victory. You know, it's as you die to yourself now that you live both now and eternally as you were made to be. And that leads to the joy of wanting to follow him. You know, I entitled this sermon purposely, The Joyful Cost of Following Christ. It is a joy to follow him. Some of you may be familiar with Booker T. Washington. He was an African-American born in 1856, and he was born into slavery. He lived through the Civil War, and then he was freed, as all the other slaves were. And then he was able to read and able to learn, and he eventually was able to go off to college. It was a huge cost, and it's this college. He just loved and adored the president, a man named General Armstrong. Mr. Washington writes, I never saw a man who so completely lost sight of himself. He was just as happy in trying to assist some other institution in the South as he was working for his own college. It would be difficult to describe the hold that he had upon his students or the faith they had in him. I recall that one of the general's former students had occasion to push his wheelchair up a long, steep hill that taxed his strength to the utmost. When the top of the hill was reached, the former pupil, with a glow of happiness on his face, exclaimed, I am so glad that I've been permitted to do something that was real hard for the general before he dies. Well, why? He had seen how this man had spent his whole life to serve him. And what did he want to do in response? It was a joy 
to serve the man who served him. Likewise, Christ gave his entire life. He gave up his family with his father. He gave up his possessions. He took the cross, and then it's our joy to take up our cross and follow him. Yes, it is a cost, but it's a joyful cost. We get to push up the hill knowing we get to serve him. And so, yes, there are costs, and you need to consider the costs. They are real, and they will come on this earth. But there is much greater joy that comes from them. Let me conclude with a quote from Augustine. He said, How sweet all it was at once for me to be rid of those fruitless joys which I had once feared to lose. You know, we fear to lose family. We fear to lose possessions. We fear, am I going to be a success? And yet Augustine says, You, God, drove them from me. You who are the true, the sovereign joy. You drove them from me and you took their place. You who are sweeter than all pleasure. O Lord, my God, my light, my wealth, and my salvation. And so would you consider the cost? But would you also consider the benefits of knowing the one who can be our only true light, wealth, and salvation? Let's pray. O Lord, we praise you for you emptied yourself. Your son came and took the cross, despising the shame. And for the joy set before him, endured it for us. O Lord, may we joyfully count these costs and follow you. Lord, would you work in all of us a deep delight that knows the cost, but looks forward to the greater benefit that will come. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.